Good morning, Lakeside. So glad you could come out on a cold morning, be with us. And uh, if you're on the live stream, we welcome you in too. Glad you're here. Um, Our Bible passage today is about being a child of God, being in God's family. So our key text is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And I know the topic of family can bring a lot of different things to our minds since we've all had different family experiences. Uh, Garrison Keeler once wrote, The highlight of my childhood was making my brother laugh so hard that food came out his nose. And, uh, you know, that's part of being in a family. One time we were sitting at dinner and my younger brother Kevin made my older brother Mark laugh so hard that he fainted and fell off his chair (laughs) and uh, scared the daylights out of the rest of the family, but we still laugh about that. When I think about what it means to be a child of God, there's a couple of important concepts about being in a family. And they're laid out right at the beginning of our passage. So let's read the last two verses of 1 John chapter 2 that came right before our key text we just read. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So what we see here are some threads about family, identity, behavior, traits, natural traits, and relationship. These all revolve around family, and we're going to see them in this message. John's taught us about abiding in God and abiding in the light, but now he's introducing this concept of being born of God in this letter, and he's going to mention it a lot in the next couple of chapters And so these concepts help us to understand um, being born of God, being a child of God involves identity, it involves behavior. You know, when I think about belonging to a family, there is identity. You know, I belong to the Collard family, and my parents were Richard and Beverly Collard. I grew up in that old house on Airport Road in Waterford Village. And my mom and dad were Christians. We rarely missed church. And I realized growing up that our family identity becomes tied to our behavior. My mom and dad were hard workers. They raised five children. My mom worked at different jobs. Uh, She worked at a laundry, several different places. And, And then when she was 87 years old, She was admitted to a nursing facility. She was no longer able to walk. And she asked one one day, do they have any potatoes I can peel so I can earn my keep? (laughs) I mean, that's who she was. Her behavior and her identity were linked. My dad was employed full-time until he was 89, which I don't aspire to, by the way. In addition to working full-time, he volunteered. He started a lot of sports leagues, uh, especially for girls. There weren't any leagues back in the late 60s, early 70s, and he sacrificed for others. And there's a plaque hanging in the Waterford Community Center Hall of Honor for him because his service, his behavior was tied to his identity. 
So when my four siblings and I would pass through the Waterford schools, you'd hear teachers say things like, oh, you're one of the collards. <laughs> it meant something. We had an identity. And since behavior was tied to identity, certain things were expected of you if you were a collard. And when my behavior matched my identity, people would say, well, of course he acted like that. He, he's a collard. But when my behavior didn't match, then they would say, what's up with that? You know, I didn't expect that of you. Another family angle involves natural traits. Some of our behavior or our abilities are built in from birth. Lydia took this picture of me at a recent birthday with my grandson, Henry. Actually, my grandson, Jacob's kind of photobombing <laughs> in there as well. When Henry's mom saw the picture later, she was amazed at the family resemblance. When you looked at our smile and even the tilt of our heads, they were the same. Even with over 50 years separating Henry and I, there's still uh, completely unintentional similarities. I say unintentional on his part. These are natural traits that we receive at birth. This is another principle that will come into play when we think about being a child of God. God is love and righteous and gracious and just. And when we exhibit those traits, others can see that we're born of God. And then the last angle about family involves relationship. We have a relationship with our parents that affects our behavior. The love of our parents or the lack of love will affect our well-being and our actions. Strong love between a parent and a child affects our behavior. A loving parent sets a good example. A loving parent trains and disciplines their children because they love them. They want what's best for them. The love of a parent shows usually, uh, it usually stirs up a response from us. This love is shown in our behavior, our trust, and our obedience. And it brings us joy. It brings us fulfillment. So watch for these things as we go through the rest of the passage. It's a tough passage. But family identity, behavior, natural traits, relationship will shine through and help us understand the significance of this passage. So let's move on to chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has, who less hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. And so I want to explore next, who is a child of God? This verse one's amazing to think about. It's one of my favorite Bible verses. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. John's saying, look at this. This is so amazing, so extravagant, so lavish, over-the-top love God has shown. But who is he writing to? 
Who is it that he's grouping with himself and saying, we are children of God? There's two points here. One is a child of God is someone who's been born again, who has belief in Jesus. We can go back to John's Gospel, chapter 1, and we already read these verses, but just to think about them again, speaking of Jesus coming into the world in verse 10 of John 1, it says, He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the only way to enter into God's family is to be born again. And Jesus taught this in John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered him, being Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So how does this happen? How does one become born again? Jesus goes on in that same chapter in a verse most of us know really well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God loved us so much that he sent his son to save us. When you believe and you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're born again of God. It's a supernatural event. You become a child of God. You receive divine life, a new nature, eternal life. This is reinforced in a couple of other verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 teaches us believers in Jesus are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's that kind of power. Being born of God is a new start for life, for eternity. We participate in the life of God. Paul the Apostle stated it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Being born of God changes the core of our being. God implants a new desire for righteousness, a new purpose for life. And none of these things happen without being born again. When we believe that Jesus came from heaven into this world, when we believe that he died on the cross and he rose again, it's then that a new life starts that's characterized by faith and love. We don't become children of God because we deserve it or we do something to earn it. And this is where family resemblance comes in. Just like a child exhibits their parents' character and nature, our righteous behavior is evidence that we're born again. So before I discuss what being a child of God means, I think it's important to understand the second point in this section is the difference between being created by God and being born again. Because the truth that you must be born again to be a child of God is sometimes misunderstood. And that's because 
Sometimes people use the lingo, we're all God's children, to describe how God created us all in his image. But the fact we were all created by God does not mean we're all born again. And it's an important distinction to understand. The Bible teaches that we were all created by God. He's the creator of all. We value all human life because of that. We believe in basic human dignity and equality because of that. Being created by God is not equal to being a child of God. We must be born again. Why is that? Because human beings are sinful and incapable of being righteous on our own. To live a life of righteousness and to be declared righteous by God, we need to be born again. There's a popular song released last year by Torrin Wells. It's, it's called All God's Children. And the song takes a stand against human trafficking. And, and I think we would all agree that's evil, human trafficking. And it states several important truths. We are made in God's image. True. We are perfectly loved by God. True. We're all worthy of freedom. True. We're all God's children. False. What makes us God's children is accepting Jesus as our Savior. You know, on one hand, it's an exclusive claim that only believers in Jesus are children of God. But it's also a wide-open invitation. Anyone can be a child of God. It's free to all who receive it. Any person with a personal faith in Jesus can say, I'm a child of God. And look at how much God loved us. By grace, God doesn't just forgive us. He could have just done that. But no, he brought us into his family, a new identity. He doesn't just accept us. He empowers us to do what's right. New desires, new abilities. He doesn't just help us grow in our lives to be more like Jesus on earth. He ultimately will make us like him for eternity. This is the kind of love God has had for us. So we should stop for the first application question to say, do I understand what it means to be a child of God? Have I placed my faith, my personal faith, in Jesus in order to be a member of God's family? John wrote this, not that we would question our salvation, but to reassure us that if we've put our faith in Christ, we're God's children right now. So that's the way to view this question. Have I come to that point where I realized I can't live a righteous life before God on my own? Have I come to a point where I put my faith in Jesus and receive new life? Because that's what it means to be a child of God. That's how we become a member of of God's family. So now, what does this passage teach us with that foundation about being a child of God? So being a child of God means, first of all, I am loved. You know, John wrote the Gospel of John, the same John who wrote this letter we're studying, and you remember what he, he used to refer to himself 
as in that book. He kept calling himself, when you see him write, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was his name for himself. And so he's bringing that to us in this first verse. See what kind of love the Father has given us. If we don't remember anything else when we walk out the door this morning, we should remember, I'm loved, I'm loved. When describing my family earlier, I can't express enough gratitude for growing up in a home where my parents loved me unconditionally. It changed my life. It made me want to honor my parents. It made me not want to disappoint them. It gave me confidence that I could approach them when things didn't go well, when I had problems, because I knew they loved me. I knew they wanted what was best for me. I had a relative whose children went through really tough problems. One of them ended up in prison for a while. And he discussed with me, you know, some of the failings he thought he had as a parent, but then he said something to me that I'll never forget. He said, I just wish my children had known that I loved them and that they could always come to me. I never forgot that. The Father loves us. The world might not understand this relationship we have with our Heavenly Father. He loves us. Why do believers at Lakeside prioritize serving in ministry over some other leisure time they could be having? Why do believers give money to support missionaries, to share the love of Jesus to people they've never met? Why do some sacrifice time and money to get their children, you know, a Christian education. This behavior is based on a fundamental priority driven by love that the world doesn't understand. After all, if they don't know God, they don't understand this relationship we have as his children. But he reassures us, you're my child now, and I love you. I chuckled at a, a Christian writer I know who had someone insult him, the insult was, you're a gospel-y, gospel-centered gospel guy. <laughs> Which, you know, if you think about the fact gospel means good news, I don't know, I couldn't say that sentence that way, but they told me it was stupid for being that way. And he said, put that on my tombstone. <laughs> I can't think of a better thing to be ridiculed for than to be a gospel-y, gospel-centered gospel guy. Because he knows his identity is tied to being a child of God. And here's the ultimate payoff. When Jesus appears, we will be like him. Verse 2, again, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. John's speaking in this chapter with absolute certainty about a lot of things. But he's not afraid to admit that there's some things that we don't fully understand. We don't fully understand what our glorified bodies will be like. What we will be has not yet appeared. I'm kind of reliving a year ago as I go through this year because it was a, a year ago my yesterday my brother Kevin found out he had liver cancer 
and along with cirrhosis in his liver, his disease, he found out, was too far advanced to get a liver transplant. And he received a letter that simply said he didn't qualify, and it was time for hospice. His time was short, and he lived about three months from that day. He was 53. And we talked about this very topic. Kevin was a child of God. What would death be like? What would he feel and experience? And we admitted we didn't know everything. But we know God's promises in many areas of the scriptures. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we know that the moment he passed, he would be at home with the Lord. We know from Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to die is gain, and to be with Christ is far better than our earthly existence. Philippians 3.21 goes on to say, Jesus will ultimately transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Kevin counted on all these things, and he was at peace. Being a child of God means we'll be like him. It's enough for us to know that when he appears and through eternity, we will be both with Jesus and like Jesus. And we'll be free from the possibility of sin, sickness, sorrow, death. So verse 3 goes on to say, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I'm loved. I know I'm God's child. I know my future is certain, and I'll be like Jesus when he appears. And I carry this hope around with me every day, and it transforms me. John's laying out the ground where this chapter's headed. My behavior doesn't go in the direction of righteousness because I want to make a good appearance or because I'm motivated by a list of rules. It's because God loves me. And I love him. So being a child of God means I'm loved, but it also means I understand the seriousness of sin. He's going to go through two sections of verses here, verses 4 through 7, and then 8 through 10. And they kind of go through and cycle through the same thought process. So we're going to handle them together as we walk through. There's an introductory phase in verse 4 and in verse 8. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Notice the phrase, makes a practice of sinning. This is a key point. John is not teaching that a child of God does not sin at all. Some people have concluded that from these verses But John's referring to the practice of sinning. It's not that he's giving a license to sin, but he's addressing those who claim to be children of God while making a practice of sinning, which he says is inconsistent. Practice. I know the basketball fans among us, when they hear the word practice, immediately hear the voice of superstar player, Allen Iverson, 
who many years ago had a classic rant in which he uttered the word practice 22 times because he was accused of not practicing hard enough. Practice? We're talking about practice? Maybe a way to understand what John refers to when he says the practice of sinning is that practice is something you do over and over and over again. Practice is habitual. So he's not referring to something you do one time or occasionally. He's trying to make it clear that this teaching is about a lifestyle of sin. Sinning and not caring about it. Sinning and thinking it's no big deal. Sinning with no repentance. Sinning and not realizing the grief it brings to God. Sinning and not recognizing that sin is a destroyer of everything good in our lives. So the next thing he does is, as he describes the nature of sin, verse 4b, sin is lawlessness, 8b, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. You know, the expressions of sin in the Bible are too numerous to mention. We know that sin can be an action, it can be attitude, it can be motivation that's contrary to God's holiness. We all have our own list of behaviors that we know fit into the sin category. Lying, although sometimes we excuse white lies. Cheating, although sometimes we think it's acceptable if it's a means to a good end. After all, if you want, you want to win, they say, you know, you're not, you're not cheating, you're not trying. Our human nature tends to rationalize and minimize sin, at least when we commit sin. It's much easier for us to point out sinful behavior in other people's lives. But why do we sin so easily? and so easily rationalize about it. Because the origin of sin is the devil, and he's the master of deception. I love this observation by Louis Giglio. The enemy works in your life by luring and lying. He promises things he can't deliver. He challenges God's truth. He attacks God's character and intentions. Don't fall for the lies. Don't chase the lure. Don't give the enemy a seat at your table. The nature of sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion against God. And when we sin, we're rebelling against the very nature of God. Sin and Jesus are at enmity with each other. And so John continues this kind of painful statement Sin is so destructive, that's why Jesus came into the world. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse 8c, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. John's gospel, back to his gospel for a minute, chapter 1, verse 29, he records when John the Baptist saw Jesus. Since the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came because of sin. 
He was the only one who could. Because as both God and man, Jesus did not and cannot sin. So John draws his first conclusion for the child of God about sin. If I really understand why he came, I won't persist in my I won't let sin persist in my life. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So if I claim to be a child of God, if I claim to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and I deliberately, consistently practice sin, it's a contradiction of terms. It calls into question whether I truly know him. Verse 6 says, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. It's clear that a Christian continues to struggle with the human nature to sin. John wrote this in chapter 1 that we just studied. He said, if we, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So it's not, again, about sinlessness. But he also taught in chapter 1 that we should confess our sin and seek to live a righteous life. And this is where being born of God is emphasized because we were given a new nature when we were born again. So when a child of God sins, they should experience conflict within themselves between the old nature and the new nature that they received when they were born again. We have a choice. You can't just blame it on the old nature. We have a choice. And when we sin, we experience grief for our actions. When a child of God sins, they desire for repentance and change. When a true child of God sins, they don't want to go down that same path again and again and again. They do not make a habit of it. They do not persist in it. So I may sin, but I do not practice sin. It's the point. So when it says a child of God doesn't practice sin, it isn't that it's impossible for us to sin, but that we should not persist in it. It's a valid test of our Christianity if we say sin is no big deal, if we look up to God and say, you can't tell me what to do, if we're uncaring about the constant sin in our lives, it calls into question, do we really know God? Is, are we truly a child of God? And at the very least, we're hiding from the world our true identity, our family identity. When we sin, we're playing for that moment on Satan's team. The point is, if we sin habitually, without remorse, the conclusion can be reached that even though we say we're a child of God, we're on Satan's team. John calls this being a child of the devil. Verse 10, by this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. And John makes it clear there are only two groups, children of God and children of the devil. There's no third team. There's no Switzerland. There's no neutral. There's no middle ground. We're not one team either. We're not one universal family, sometimes sinning, sometimes righteous. 
I'm either on the side of truth or on the side of falsehood. I'm either on the side of good or on the side of evil. I'm on the side of right or wrong. Sin originated with the devil. And if we're children of God, we will not be habitually sinning or practicing sin with no concern about it. To which family do we belong? The application question for us as children of God is whether we need a reality check on the seriousness of sin. In what area of my life have I gotten careless about sin? And I need to stop and confess to God. John's final statements lead us to our next two points. Being a child of God means I practice righteousness instead of practicing sin. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I think it's time to recall the family concepts again, identity, behavior, natural traits, relationship. When we're born again, when God becomes our father, we're placed in his family, that's our identity. We're secure in his family. That's our relationship. Behavior comes into play when we act righteously. We do the right thing. We follow Jesus' example of holiness and justice and mercy and grace and love. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And this isn't a cold list of rules. God's commands are always for our benefit, always for our health, always to help us grow pure, even as Jesus is pure. We now have, as God's children, a desire to obey because he loves us. This is the kind of family we are. The righteous behavior doesn't keep me in the family. It's the proof that I'm already in the family. Simply put, the child exhibits the parent's character because he or she shares the parent's nature. John Stott put it this way, a person's righteousness is thus the evidence of his new birth not the cause or the condition of it. How do you recognize the child of God? We go back to the first verse in our passage, verse 29. You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then our passage ends in verse 10 with the opposite statement. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. If you're a believer in Jesus, how would you characterize your life? Are you a gospel-y, gospel-centered, gospel guy? Or do you feel like you're just hanging on by a thread? I've been a follower of Jesus for over 50 years, and I think I've felt like both of those, sometimes on the same day. I don't always feel righteous. But I'm encouraged that 
The Christian life is about growing in maturity. Sometimes we fail. We do not gain full maturity immediately. We do not all arrive at the same time. Frankly, none of us will completely arrive until we're with Jesus when he appears. But verse 3 says, Everyone who lusts hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I know as a father, I'm so happy when I see my children caring for others, showing love, showing grace, how much more our Heavenly Father must love to see us practice righteousness, do the right thing. Application question for righteousness. In the family of God, the goal is to be like father, like son. Can you think of an instance in your life over the past month where that was true of you? And how can you continue to grow in this area? The last point about being a child of God is that I love my brothers and sisters. John kind of snuck this into verse 10, starting the transition now, where we're going to be emphasizing loving one another quite a bit. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The child of God practices righteousness and love is righteousness in action. It's proof we're born again. When I hate my brother, I'm communicating that I'm not a child of God. A lot of times, we think practicing righteousness is about churchy things, like tithing and attending services and even serving in a ministry, all good things. But verse 10 is teaching us that righteousness in action is loving my brothers and my sisters. The thing is, we can do all the churchy things, tithe, attend, serve, with a critical spirit and an unloving heart. That's not righteousness. Loving our brothers and sisters is righteousness in action. Loving them when they're difficult to love Loving them when they've made a mistake. Loving them when they're in need or hurting at a time that's very inconvenient for us. When we stop and love them, we're communicating that we're a child of God. I don't want to steal the thunder from the next few weeks. It's going to be a great topic for us as John visits it again and dives deeper into what it means. Let's quickly recap. Being a child of God means I've been born again. I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Have you placed your faith in Jesus and become a member of God's family? If you realize that you've never been born again, I'd, I'd love to talk with you further. If you have questions, I, I have time. If you want to talk later, you can send a response to respond at lbchapel.org. That comes into our church office. Our lead pastor, Nate, or one of our leaders would be happy to spend some time with you hearing your story. Being a child of God also means I'm loved by God. You say, really, Steve? I'm going through such a tough time right now. 
John says, look at how much the Father loves us. I had someone give me good advice a while back, really when I was a teenager. Never try to love God more than you really do. Just think about how much he loves you. And that will change your heart. Look at how much the Father loves us. Think of what he's done to bring you into his family. Being a child of God means I understand the seriousness of sin. And so we had that application. What area of my life have I gotten careless about sin and I need to stop and confess to God? Being a child of God means I practice righteousness instead of practicing sin. And so if that's our goal, like Father, like Son, can you think of an instance where that's true? What can you do to grow more in that area? And finally, I love my brothers and sisters. I remember that love is righteousness in action. Don't wait for a perfect plan. Just love somebody. God loved us that we might love one another. Let's just pray. Father, it's overwhelming sometimes to think of what it means to be your child. So we remember and thank you that first of all it means you love us. We can't scratch the surface, really, of how much you love us. Help us abide in that love. Help us keep looking up to you. So speak to us through your word that we've just gone over today. We ask for your help in each of our lives. We pray for any who might not know you as their Savior, that, Lord Jesus, they might even today come to know you and be in God's family. And help us, help us as as these words challenge us to respond in love to you, to our family identity. So we just commit this time to you with thanks. In Jesus' precious name.